Wow. Amen. Tonight's message is the heavenly sanctuary. I feel like we're already there. I don't know what the angels can do. I assume it's it's better than that, but they're going to have to be working at it. <laughs> if you turn your Bibles tonight to the ninth chapter here in the book of Hebrews, in the heavenly sanctuary. You've seen a theme throughout the book of Hebrews, and it is not going to change. It really is these amazing comparisons between really anything here on earth. All of the components of worship, all of the components of uh, our religious activity, the things that the Jews understood from the Old Testament, the sacrifices, the law, all of it. We have these marvelous comparisons, and tonight is no different, and it's in some ways drawing us into that place to where we see the superiority of Christ, of course, but really to that goal that's the ultimate goal of every believer, and that's to make it home to heaven. Amen? We're on a long journey, and that journey is fraught with all kinds of difficulties and things that we cannot control that happen to us in spite of the fact that we're trying to live our lives in a way that's pleasing to the Lord. And you know, There's that old saying by those of us who are a little more practically oriented than others, and that is that uh, seeing is believing, amen? You know, we see something, it's pretty easy to believe it. But in essence, in the spiritual realm, it is exactly the opposite. Uh, Believing is seeing, because there's a lot of things that we simply believe by faith that ultimately one day we're going to see in fullness. But to some degree, we believe they're true now without seeing them. And so really there's believing leads us to seeing. And I have to believe in order to receive the things of God. And so in tonight's passage, that really is the issue. The principle of faith that uh, we apply to our relationship uh, to the Lord and to everything that is Him. His heaven, uh, His earth, His control over this world, all of those things. Uh, we, we derive principally from what the Bible tells us about it. So we believe it, and one day we're going to see it. And so tonight, a little glimpse into the heavenlies, and there's a stark contrast uh, between that which is here on earth, which is good. Tonight was wonderful, uh, but it gets better. And so I pray you're looking forward to that heavenly sanctuary. Now, would you pray with me as we begin our study tonight in His Word? Father, thank you for the time of worship. Lord, that we might exalt your name and and praise you for the good God, the gracious God, the amazing ruler of our lives that you are. And Lord Jesus, as you've made all this possible by your sacrifice for us, uh, you've drawn us in, you've torn the veil, you are the reason that we have access to heaven. And it's in your name tonight we dedicate these minutes God, that you would take them and use them for your glorious purposes to instruct us as your people. We love you. We thank you for the privilege of this place to gather together to study your word, for the friendships that we have, for the fellowships that we undertake that we're here. Uh, We pray that you'd bless us now as we study in Jesus' name. Amen. 
Verse 1 here in Hebrews chapter 9. Continuing on with these contrasts. Then indeed, notice this, that even the first covenant had ordinances of divine service in the and the earthly sanctuary. So there were there were rules and regulations and there was order to the earthly sanctuary. Uh, for a tabernacle was prepared and the first part and so it's going to go on to describe the earthly tabernacle. If you were with us in our study in the book of Exodus, we covered this extensively in all of the parts. We'll do a little bit of review tonight. And the reason that this is important, because all of these little components of the earthly tabernacle, the whole structure itself, everything from the pegs that were driven in to attach to this earth, to the white linen fence that surrounded the earthly tabernacle, to the brazen altar, uh, the bronze laver, all of the things that were in the courtyard, the very gate into the outer courts that was there, all of those things had tremendous symbolism, but they were only a shadow of things to come. And so part of that is laid out for us tonight uh, in this passage for way of contrast. And, And really we have to remember that as Jesus spoke to the disciples and as he was talking about Um, our duties while we're here on earth. If you remember there in Matthew 22, he said, Render unto Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and unto God the things that are God's. And now because your whole body is the dwelling place of the Holy Spirit, that in you resides the living God, uh, your whole temple has been given over to God. So, In the Old Testament, there was exactly one place on earth that God was at any one point in time. And it was the tabernacle of the Hebrews. It was the place where God could be found. And so here's this description of this one place, this one location. Uh, Surely the Holy Spirit was at work in the world, but he did not indwell any believers. He was simply here. Uh, He was convicting people and doing some of the things that he does now, but they were not indwelt by the Holy Spirit. And so the the Spirit of the living God, as we know it, dwelled in exactly one place during that time, which made him a very, very rare commodity on this earth. And so it says here, For the tabernacle was prepared, the first part, in which was the lampstand, the table, and the showbread, which is called the sanctuary, and behind it the second And the second veil, the part of the tabernacle which was called the holiest of all. And so here was this place that was a holy of holies. And as I've shared with you before, but it bears repeating, there was a division. There there was prayers that were being offered up inside of that first section which was called the holy place. And then there was the holy of holies which was beyond it, uh, which was separated by a very, very thick veil. And, And no one could go in there but the high priest. And so there was a first part and a second part. And that second part, called the holiest of all, or the holy of holies, which had the golden censer and the Ark of the Covenant uh, overlaid on all sides with gold, in which were the golden pot that had manna. And so we find out what was inside of the Ark of the Covenant. The golden pot, which had the manna. And so there was some manna that was collected. And, I, you know, it must have been really gnarly smelling after you know, a thousand years of being moved around inside of the Ark of the Covenant. But nonetheless, as a sign of God's provision, there was the manna. 
There was, in addition to that, Aaron's rod that budded, and so there was a sign of God's miracles and the things that he had done on this earth on behalf of mankind. And, of course, the tablets of the covenant, or as you know them, the Ten Commandments themselves. And so, really, just three things that we know of were inside of the Ark of the Covenant, and they were these three things. God's provision in the wilderness, God's miracles on our behalf, and ultimately God's law, which would be inscribed, as we saw last time, in our hearts, ultimately, as Jeremiah prophesied there in Jeremiah chapter 31, in verses 31 to 34. That ultimately God's desire always to, was to dwell inside of us, to change it from a set of tablets that was etched in stone to hearts that had the, the literal love of God, the Word of God, the Spirit of God uh, dwelling inside of them. And so, uh, but at this time, when these things were, were described, and above these, there on the Ark of the Covenant, were the cherubim of glory overshadowing the mercy seat. And so you can get this picture of God's working and God's mercy and God's overshadowing or his covering. It was really a picture of the entire work of God as people generally knew it to be. And so of these things, we cannot now speak in detail. And so when these words were written, which highly likely was just before A.D. 70, and so the, the last temple, uh, Herod's temple, which was the second temple built on the Temple Mount. The first one was destroyed by the Babylonians. The second one by uh, Titus, the Roman general, in AD 70. That one, at this time, was still standing. But who could speak of those things? Very few people had actually ever been in there. If you weren't of the priestly tribe of Levi, uh, you never got to go inside of the holy place. And if you weren't the high priest, so there were 40, maybe 3 to 7 people in all of human history that had ever stood to offer sacrifice before the Ark of the Covenant. Think of that. That there were probably at the most 47 people who had ever gone into the Holy of Holies on the whole earth. And now these things had been thus prepared. The priest always went into the first part of the tabernacle. And so there uh, in the holy place, and, and so they were allowed in that far, and that was it, performing the services. And so they would attend unto the table of the showbread. They would be the one that stocked the, the altar of incense, and they would be the one that would fill the, an, the, the oil and the wicks into the golden lampstand. And so they were allowed to go that far. But into the second part, the high priest went alone once a year, and not without blood. Didn't go in without blood, which he offered for himself and for the people's sins committed in ignorance. And the Holy Spirit indicating this, that the way into the holiest of all was not yet made manifest while the first tabernacle was standing. So when someone says to you uh, that the way uh, to God's heart in a permanent sense was made manifest in the Old Testament days, you can point them to the book of Hebrews. It says clearly it was not. That no one was ever saved. And we're going to get further confirmation of that in the remainder of the chapter, and we're going to try and get the whole chapter tonight. <clears throat> so while the first tabernacle was standing, was not possible to make it into the holiest of all by just anyone. But it was symbolic 
for the present time in which the both, both the gifts and the sacrifices were, were offered, which cannot make him who performed the service perfect in regard to conscience. In other words, it did not take care of the individual's problems in finiteness. They weren't over. They were put away, as I've said a couple of times. Concerned only with foods and drinks and various washings and fleshly ordinances imposed until the time of Reformation. And so here's this Old Testament sanctuary. And it really was a picture of both the tabernacle in the wilderness and, of course, the Temple of Solomon and Herod's Temple. So all three of those things uh, had the same model. And so Hebrews reminds us now that these regulations, these practices, they were ordained of God, but they weren't ordained to ultimately clear the conscience of man. They could only get you so far. There was an inferiority to the tabernacle service, and that inferiority was not because of God. That inferiority was because of people. And so there are five basic ways that are given here, described here, uh, that the earthly sanctuary was inferior to what will come. And here they go, all five of them. We're going to try and move through this relatively quickly because we covered these things in so much detail in our study in the book of Exodus which you can go online and listen to if you like. We, we do have a website, and it has about five, 600 studies on it. So uh, you can go there and for free download all these things onto your iPad, your iPod, your iBrain, whatever, <laughs> your iQuit. <clears throat> First thing that we see here in verse 1 was that the earthly sanctuary was inferior to the heavenly one because it was made by man. It was crafted by people. And so because it was crafted by people, it had no capacity to be perfect. Now, I don't know how many of you actually appreciate fine woodworking. I I very much appreciate fine woodworking. And, And I have seen some woodwork that when I look at it, it's just like there is no way on earth that a human being could have actually done that. This must have been some kind of CNC machine that carved these things. Uh, my grandfather was a master wood carver. Uh, and, and he was, well, he's dead now, so I can talk a little bit about him. He's been gone for quite a while. But he, he was a member of the John Birch Society. And for those of you that know the John Birch Society, um, they were the forerunners of the modern-day survivalist movement. And matter of fact, they still kind of lean that way as a general rule. So my grandfather, when he left Southern California, figuring that people were dangerous, went to Wyoming. He bought a large chunk of property and proceeded to build himself and my grandmother a house. Uh, he, he took upon himself to undertake for a period of about 10 years uh, carving every single inch of baseboard molding and crown molding in the entire house into Indian hunting scenes. And so he would start in one corner of the room and he would hand carve an entire piece all the way down the entire wall and then turn the corner. And when the joints were cut, even who was on the corner was on both sides. I mean, it was just stupid. I mean, this is the type of thing that you look at it and you go, humans did not do that. But even looking at something like that to where someone endeavors to spend a huge amount of their earthly time doing something that's for no other purpose than their own good pleasure does not compare to heaven. It's still earthly. Uh, the, the, 
wood borer beetles and everything else can still eat all of that beautiful carving. It can fall apart. Uh, the grandkids can come in and whack it with brooms, you, whatever. It, it, it's temporary. No matter how beautiful it is, it's inferior because it's on this earth and it's made out of the stuff of this earth. And consequently, it absolutely is something that, that will not permanently last ever, no matter how well it's made. You can see that in some of the, the great buildings that still exist. There, there are some tremendous worries about some of our national monuments in Washington, D.C. They're starting to decay to such an extent that they're not sure they can actually shore them up and fix them. Uh, you probably remember that little, what we call a little tiny 5.8 earthquake that hit Washington, D.C. last year. It, it has done $18 million in damage to just the Washington Monument alone. They're like, well, you know, we don't know. We might have to take it down and rebuild it. Uh, it. That was built, started before the Civil War. And because it wasn't finished, it stayed at that 300-foot level for a long time. wasn't finished until 60 years later. And, and yet you look at it, and if you're standing far enough away when you fly into Washington Reagan, wow, there's the Washington Monument, 555 feet tall. And you get there, it's, it's kind of funky looking. Looks like it's kind of falling apart, actually. It's because it is. And yet it's the symbol of America. Same thing with all of our buildings there. When you look at them, a lot of them are, are facades. You go behind them and they're just like, wow, I didn't know that could stand up like that. They're earthly. They're flawed. They're failed. And so it was with the tabernacle when it was built. It was never meant to be a permanent place for people to worship God. had all kinds of weaknesses in it. And probably the worst of all is it was limited uh, geographically. It could only be in one place at one time. You realize that, the, of course, the big change is now. That's not true anymore. You can worship God anywhere, any place, and He can dwell in you no matter where you are. The other thing is that it had to be dismantled. With the Old Testament tabernacle, they literally took it down and moved it. And so they'd be out in the middle of the desert someplace, and the pillar of fire cloud would begin to move, and they're like, okay, it's time to pick up stakes. And I've often wondered if they had somebody like a sign to get all of the stakes or whatever and make sure they went with them. You know, it, was, it must have been quite a process. So it was inferior uh, that it was just for this earth. It was also inferior, secondarily, because it was a type of something that was greater and the reason we know that is all the things that were actually in it that are described here in Hebrews chapter 9. The various parts, the furnishings, and you'll notice the first part and the second part. And inside that first part, uh, there are some things listed here, and chief among them was the lampstand. And that golden, that golden lampstand, that seven-branched candlestick, if you will, really wasn't a candlestick as we know it. It was actually an oil lamp. And oil was put into it. Normally olive oil and wicks were put in there. Now, I don't know how many of you have those, those Y2K candles. You remember those things at, at when we turned the new millennium and everybody got those 47-pound candles because we were going to be without electricity for 100 years or whatever. You know, the, the thing was it was going around and that everything in the air was going to come crashing down because all chips would fail and all of those kind of things. I don't know if you have any of those big candles, but I don't care how big they are. They don't last forever, amen? 
And furthermore, once you start to burn them, you know how they kind of cup in at the top and then it starts to melt and the wick goes down. and They're, they're a pain. They could only shed light so long as they actually functioned as a candle. And so there in that place, there were no lights inside of the tabernacle. You know, they didn't have LEDs. The high priest didn't come in and, what are you doing in there? And kind of shine. They had a candlestick. That was it. Even though it was supposed to represent the light of God, the light of the Lord. But it was manufactured, in essence, by man. So it was very temporary. There was also a table in there that had 12 loaves of bread on it. And every Sabbath, a new 12 loaves of bread would be put on that table, and the 12 old ones would be taken off and eaten by the priests. It was to represent God's care and provision for the children of Israel. And so here they are, they'd go in there, and yet they had to swap them out every week. You talk about a a bad reference to God's provision. It's like, okay, God's provision lasts exactly one week, and then we got to eat it. So it it didn't give you a picture, really, of of anything other than what God would do at some other point in time. They knew he was always taking care of them, but every single week they had to go replenish that bread. The other thing that was in there was the altar of incense. And, of course, at that point in time, as the the priest attended to that altar of incense, uh, there was was the censer, which was actually the part that held the incense, and then there was an altar which burned it. And in that place, that's where the priest would go to offer prayers because they dared not go into the holy place or the holy of holies because they were not fit to do so. It would have killed them. So they stood just outside of the presence of God and they burned this incense and prayed. And so it gives us a picture of the things that now we now have in full measure. We have the light of the Lord. Matter of fact, Scripture now tells us that we are the light of the world. That God now shines through us. And and Jesus went on to say, So let your light shine before men, that they would see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. And so we have all of these things which were very temporary then and only available to a handful of people. Most people never saw these things. They didn't get to go in there. If you weren't a priest, you could not go into the holy place. And if you weren't the high priest, you couldn't go into the holy of holies. That brings us to the second part. So there are those three things inside the holy place. There's only one thing inside the holy of holies, and it contained what you know as the Ark of the Covenant, you know, that highly sought-after prize from Adolf Hitler and, and George, you know, and what's-his-face Harrison in Raiders of the Lost Ark, you know, which is now stored in some warehouse in Washington, D.C., as far as we know. Now, they had, you had the Ark of the Covenant inside there. And the Ark of the Covenant was basically a a pretty simple box. It was not very large, a couple of feet wide, about 18 inches deep, about 18 and a half inches high. Uh, And inside of that were these things. And it it was simply a picture of how God worked in the world. God worked in the world through his law. God worked in the world through his provision. And God worked in the world through his miracles. And the way that you gained those things was through what was on top of it. There was on top of it a mercy seat. That was the place where the high priest went in and he spilled the blood. He would literally take the blood from the offering. He would spill it upon the mercy seat. It would rain down off the mercy seat and cover the things that God does in this world. And so that's a picture of how God worked at that time. But it was very, very, very inferior. It was only done exactly one time a year. 
It was the only time that guys were the, the whole children of Israel could kind of take a big sigh of relief on the day of atonement on Yom Kippur. And so the, the law wasn't broken. He saw the blood. The miracles weren't despised. He saw the blood. The, the things that God did in a provisionary sense to, to take care of the children of Israel, all by the blood, all covered by the blood. And so it was spilled on the mercy seat. And overriding that was God's protection through the angelic beings, the cherubim on the top of it. And so all of it was symbolism. The third way that it was inferior, and that is it was completely inaccessible to the common man. It just wasn't available to you. If you and I had been alive during that time and we were Gentiles, you couldn't have it at all, period. So can you imagine the children of Israel moving through the wilderness and they're, they're marching together and however they march, we don't think that you know they did like a marching band kind of thing, but as they're traveling through the wilderness, here they come and they've got all these guys and bear in mind it all had to be carried by hand. You could not put it on a beast of burden, so all of the parts of the tabernacle had to be carried by people as they're coming through. The first thing that they would do was establish east-west for the access and they would the, the, the access of the tabernacle itself and they would set up this giant linen fence and that linen fence basically said to all of mankind, stay out. Don't want you to be here. You can't come in. If you're not one of us, you're out. And then they would put up the tent, the tabernacle, and all of those things, and put all these furnishings inside of it. So basically, a vast majority of, of God's work in the world at that time was telling people, you're not worthy. You cannot come in. You can't even get close to me. And if you weren't of the Jewish people, you couldn't have a relationship, in essence, with God without at least becoming Jewish. You didn't have it. And so it was stay out. The fourth way that it was inferior was it was completely temporary. Basically, it was wherever the Jewish people moved it. They could be over in one valley one week, and they could be in another valley another week, and people could look in it in one place and not see it in another. So it was very temporary. But when Jesus tore the veil on on the Mount of Golgotha, when, when he said it's finished and the veil was torn, it changed its place of residence, and so now it resides in us. And in other words, the tabernacle of God is available to each of us. Before, the fifth way that it was vastly inferior was that it was external and not internal. In other words, it was something that you basically did and saw, but it was not something that you ever became. And so those sacrifices that were applied to the mercy seat provided no lasting change whatsoever in anybody's life. So now when we say that I have a relationship with Jesus Christ by grace and through faith, we have lasting change that stays with you throughout the rest of your days. And so that Old Testament sanctuary, the two temples, were completely inferior to what we now have by grace and through faith. And so he goes on now to describe the superior heavenly sanctuary, which is that which is to come. And it begins in verse 11 by saying, But Christ came as high priest of the good things to come. Not, not the things that were. Not that we need to go back to those Old Testament ways. Not that we need to go back to the religious activity. Not that we need to rebuild a temple with the greater and more perfect tabernacle, notice what it is, not made with hands, 
that is not of this creation. And so there was a time when that was as good as it got. And now that new tabernacle has happened because, as we saw last time, there's a new covenant. There's a new high priest. There's a new sheriff in town, if you will. And his name is Jesus. The game has been changed. The the things that we used to know as the most efficient way to have a relationship with God are now completely insufficient. And so those five deficiencies that you saw in the first ten verses, uh, now we see a completely better way. And it's better, number one, why? Because it's heavenly. Remember, it was bad because it was of this earth. The reason it's better is because it's not of this earth. It's not subject to the decay. It's not subject to the the temporary uh, establishment that, that mankind might give it. That's why when we say, you know, the, the church of God is wherever God's people are. That's, that's why we say those things. That's why it's not attached to some building. That's why this place is just as sufficient a place to worship God uh, as any cathedral in Europe. You know, you cannot help but be amazed when you travel to Europe and you see some of the cathedrals that were built uh, from about uh, year 1000 or so. Uh, and some of them finished into the late 1900s. But if you go, for instance, to the city of Salzburg in Bavaria, and you go to the Salzburger Cathedral, uh, that cathedral seats about 5,000 people. Um, it was begun in A.D., I believe, 998, the original foundation. It wasn't finished until the 1300s. But if you go inside of that cathedral... With a normal speaking voice, you can speak to 5,000 people. The acoustics in it are absolutely amazing. It's laid out as an, in, in a shape of a cross and in the wings, the alcoves, you have the stations of the cross and all the statuary. And you walk in there, but you can't help but go, wow, this is awesome. I mean, if I were God, I'd want to meet here, you know. <laughs> but it's the most dead place on planet Earth spiritually. All that ever happens in there is, you know, is the civic functions of the city of Salzburg anymore. There's very little worship of God. They have an Easter cantata and a Christmas cantata, and they do some things in there. But God's largely absent because he now resides in the hearts of people. And unless he's in the hearts of the people that are in the room, all the building in the world won't make it honor God, and it won't be heavenly. Well, I mean, you guys were worshiping a little while ago. I'm just going, Lord, you're so good. I, mean, I don't know if you guys know it or not. You were drowning out the worship team. I mean, I'm sitting right next to the drum kit, and I can barely hear it. That's because we're worshiping the Lord. It's not something that's just uh, of this earth. It is heavenly. The second way that it's better is that that Old Testament way was not effective in actually dealing with sin. It didn't fix the problem. You, you see, you now are still sinners saved by grace, and I am still a sinner saved by grace, but the fact of the matter is, I'm saved by grace. I'm cleansed. I'm washed. I've been justified by the blood of the Lamb. It's a very different situation. It isn't something temporary. It's something permanent. Verse 12, it says, not with the blood of goats and calves, but with his own blood he entered the most holy place once and for all. So here's this opposite picture. 
the high priest would go in with the blood of innocent animals. The four animals had to die. They didn't do anything, and I guarantee you there was not a line of animals outside of the, the linen fence around the tabernacle compound going, hey, kill me. They, they, they did not volunteer, volunteer for that duty, okay? I guarantee you. They're not, sure, go ahead, I just can't wait. And oh, by the way, once you kill me, I'll take my own blood in there because I want to do this so bad. Didn't happen that way. But it did happen that way with Jesus. He said, I'll go in once and for all, and I'll offer myself up for you. And my blood is the blood that will get spread on the mercy seat, and I'll take care of it permanently. He entered the most holy place once and for all, having obtained eternal redemption. For if the blood of bulls and goats and the ashes of a heifer and the sprinkling of the unclean sanctifies for the purifying of the flesh, how much more shall the blood of Christ who through eternal, the eternal spirit offered himself without spot to God to cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God. So those things which were just a shadow and temporary before, Jesus actually made a reality. You're now completely, effectively cleansed by the blood of Christ. Not put away, done away with. Huge difference. And notice, I want you to underline verse 15, and for this reason, he is the mediator of the new covenant. For this reason, he's the mediator of the new covenant. For this reason, he's the mediator of the new covenant. Remember this, because he effectively dealt with sin. Notice what it says. By the means of death, for the redemption of the transgressions, and that means to pay the price to eliminate them the redemption of the transgressions under, notice this, the first covenant. So under the first covenant were sins ever redeemed. Was anybody ever saved? It says very plainly the answer is no. No one was ever saved by the blood of bulls and goats. No one was ever made right eternally because they followed all the prescribed laws of the Old Testament. They were not saved They were still waiting for the one to complete that process, and it tells you how next. That those who are called may receive the promise of the the eternal inheritance. In other words, they were waiting to receive that which Jesus would do, who is the mediator of the new covenant. The old way was not effective to deal with sin. The animal sacrifices couldn't do what Christ's sacrifices could do. The ceremonial cleansing could not do what the cleansing of the conscience now does because of the work that the Holy Spirit does in you. And those temporary blessings were never a substitute for the eternal ones. And so as you look at these verses, you can see there is just simply no comparison. They prefigured it. They gave you kind of a picture of what God was going to do, but it was never done until Jesus came. Those transgressions were just simply covered, but they were not cleansed. They they were left to be dealt with at a later time. And the good news is that when Jesus died, he died once and for all for all. Sufficient to cleanse every single sin that has ever been committed, is being committed right now, or ever will be committed in the future. That's how perfect his sacrifice is. The third way that we see the ministry of the new covenant 
uh, is better, is that it's based on the most costly sacrifice. Now, I will tell you, in Old Testament times, it was expensive to have your sins put away for a while. Matter of fact, it could cost you each and every year a good chunk of your livelihood for the year. You were allowed to sacrifice one sheep or one goat or one bull for a family of ten people. That was the Levitical law. And so if you were very poor and you were someone else's servant, chances are you did not have one of those things. The cost of one of those things, on average, was about a half year's wages. So if you needed a sheep, you worked half a year to take your sheep to the courtyard and say, here's my sheep that you're going to kill to offer up for my family on the Day of Atonement. And so half of your time was spent working so that your sins could be not dealt with, but simply put away. You you talk about a, a costly sacrifice, but how much more costly was the life of Christ? Verse 16. For where there is a testament, there also of necessity must be the death of the testator. In other words, it, the, the testament can't be made while the person making it is still alive. It, it has to be sealed with death. And for the testament is in force after men are dead, since it has no power while the testator lives. And therefore, not even the first covenant was dedicated without blood. In other words, it cost the animals their life. For when Moses had spoken every precept to all the people according to the law, he took the blood of calves and goats with water and scarlet wool and hyssop and sprinkled them both the book itself and all the people, saying, This is the blood of the covenant of God that God has commanded to you. And then likewise he sprinkled the blood both on the tabernacle and all the vessels of the ministry. In other words, it was a messy, bloody, costly business to simply have your sins put away for a while. Didn't take care of them, though. They were still hovering over you. They were waiting for a period of time to where they could be put away in finiteness. And according to the law, almost all things were purified with blood. For without the shedding of blood, just as Leviticus chapter 17, verse 11 says, for without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sin. So it didn't matter then or now. The blood had to be shed. The problem is, There was no blood on this earth that was sufficient to take care of the problem. You could have killed every single person and every animal on the earth, and the sin would have still remained. Because the sacrifice, in order to wipe out the sin, had to be perfect. And there wasn't anyone perfect. There was no animal perfect. And therefore, it was necessary that the copies of the things in the heavens should be purified with these, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. In other words, there had to be a sufficient sacrifice to take care of the actual sin. The Old Covenant was established on the basis of blood. It was clear there in Leviticus 17. And God ordained, in essence, the remission of sin through the shedding of blood. And since that purification that comes from the shedding of blood uh, was applied, people were at least temporarily uh, in a right relationship with God. But it never fixed it. Didn't cause anybody to have a change of heart. 
They were still just as prone when they left after the Day of Atonement to go out and do the things that, that we human beings would normally do. They did not have the power of the Holy Spirit dwelling in them. The Holy Spirit was simply in the world. And so they had no power over sin. And so someone who was wicked was just as wicked when they left as when they went in. The difference is now your life is being transformed by the renewing of your mind. You literally have a new nature imparted to you through the shed blood of Jesus Christ. It is a completely different and far more costly sacrifice that's been offered up for you. Nothing in that earthly tabernacle ever did those things in a permanent sense. The fourth thing in, in how the new covenant, the new sanctuary is better is found here in verse 24 and says, For Christ has not entered the holy place made with hands, which are copies of the true, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God for us. Before, it was man going to God. Now it's God going to God. You, you have literal access to God the Father through Jesus the Son. Both are God. Before it was a sinful man entering into the presence of God, and you better hope he was okay. Because you couldn't, once the high priest entered, if he died, there was no day of atonement that year. It was over. So you could have conceivably skipped a year on the day of atonement if the high priest went in, and let's just say he, you know, while he was going in there, he was thinking about all the money he was going to make from selling sheep. And God said, you know, hey, greed's in your heart. Sorry, isn't going to work. You're dead. Jesus entered into heaven himself to plead your case. And he went there because of his blood, which was perfect and shed for your sins. And so as he goes, he goes with no deficiency whatsoever. He's not ever going to get in the presence of God. Well, you were, you know, son, you were good enough except for Jeff. Now, I hate to tell you this, but Jeff's way out of your league. Your blood's not quite sufficient to cover his sin. You ever thought about that? I think a lot of people actually struggle with the fact, well, you know, that's okay for them, but God can't fix me. You know, if anybody knew what was going on in my head, my heart, they'd never even dream of thinking that I could become a Christian. When, in fact, Christ's blood is sufficient for anybody, for any reason. For all who will call upon the name of the Lord. Because he enters into the very presence of God himself. God goes to God. It's kind of hard to wrap your head around, but that's exactly what's happened. You now have God the Son interceding before God the Father. Witnessed by God the Holy Spirit. So the new covenant is now a reality. It was not a reality before. The cleansing was not a reality before. It was just a temporary thing that you could kind of get a picture of. And I would say to you in in thinking on that particular aspect of it, beware of trusting in anything that's of this earth. If you're trusting in the Lord, the Lord is heavenly. His sanctuary is heavenly. His work is heavenly. His blood was heavenly. All all that he is and was and did while he was here on this earth is heavenly. It's not earthly. And sometimes people are prone to trust in earthly things. I can tell you a lot of people trust in earthly wisdom. 
They, they, they trust, and again, I love medicine and doctors, but you know what? There are things God can do that no doctor can do, amen? So a lot of times we trust in, we trust in the earth more than we trust in heaven. We trust in the things of this earth more than we trust in heaven. We have put more of our time, talent, treasure, and resources, thought processes into trusting the things that we can see and feel and touch over now you know why I started where I started. You know, believing is really seeing. When I truly believe who God is and what Christ did, then I I am believing in the truths of heaven, not just the things of this earth. Because the things of this earth, I guarantee you, at some point in time, will fail you. I don't care how much money you have. I don't care how much uh, power or position or passion you have. All of those things, ultimately, you'll run out of. But you will never tax the resources of heaven. You'll never be able to get outside of the grasp of God. Now, you may not, you may choose to not rest in his sufficient sacrifice, but there's nowhere you can go. Scripture plainly declares, Where can I go, O God, that thou cannot find me? For if I descend into the depths of, the, of hell, you are there. If I ascend into the highest heights of heaven, you are there. So, so God knows where you are. Are you trusting in the things of this earth or the things of heaven? The tabernacle of Solomon destroyed by the Babylonians. For a long time, the Jewish people could look up on the, on the hill. They, they could be in the, anywhere in the general vicinity of Jerusalem. And it was said that in the evening, the Jewish historian Josephus uh, recorded that it was said of the, of the Jewish temple that when the menorah was lit inside of the holy place, that first part, that it could be seen as far as the horizon. So it was a spectacular place. It was a wonderful building. But it took the Babylonians about a day to destroy it. That was destroyed. It was followed by, uh, in essence, a temple of uh, that Herod built to try and gain the favor of the Jewish people. He didn't want to have a divided region that, that he presided over. And so he says, you know what, we'll just build him a new temple. We'll make it awesome. And so the temple of Herod takes the place of Solomon's temple. And it also is wonderful. It took Titus's troop, troops less than a week to destroy that one. And you can still see the blocks of it at the bottom of the, the, bottom of the ravine, so to speak, to this day. You can see the remnants of the east wall when you see the Jewish people praying before that east wall and they're bowing and they're putting, folding up their prayer requests and they're putting them in the cracks. That's the buttress wall of the Temple Mount. But there ain't no temple up there. It was temporary. So in essence, all that it represented fell apart by the hands of man. You're not going to have to worry about the tabernacle that you worship in falling apart by the hands of man. Because man can't reach where that temple is. Because it's in heaven. And it's presided over by a a king that's eternal by the Prince of Peace, the Lord of Lords. And then finally, the new tabernacle is so much better because its ministry is final and it's complete. Verse 25, it says, 
not that he should offer himself often. When you think on that phrase, think on this, that the ministry of the tabernacle and of the temples was an ongoing thing. It happened every day of the week. The Day of Atonement only occurred once a year, but there were sacrifices being offered every single day, pretty much around the clock. And so every single day, you're out there hearing, there's some poor lamb lost its life. People are bringing their doves, their their packets of sticks, their offerings, their grain offerings, their bread offerings. They would bring all their offerings to the tabernacle. It was a busy place. The Holy of Holies is a peaceful place now. There's no sacrificing going on because the sacrifice that took place was once and for all, for all. It was sufficient one time for Christ to die. As the high priest enters the most holy place every year with the blood of another, in other words, it was like that in the old he would have to suffer often since the foundation of the world. But now, once, at the end of the ages, he has appeared to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And it is appointed for men to die once. Notice this. Mark it. It's appointed. It is appointed. The word that's translated there, appointed, means it is ordained. It is etched in heaven. It is known only to God. It is appointed once for men to die, or for men to die once. Both are true. But after this, the judgment. You get exactly one opportunity to live your life while you're on this earth and to profess Christ. There are no second chances. There's no time in purgatory. There is no praying people out of hell. There are none of those things so far as Scripture is concerned. It is appointed for men once to die. And then, judgment. You're going to stand immediately before the judge of heaven and earth and the universe, and he's going to say one of two things. Enter into my kingdom of rest, or... Depart, for I have never known you. There are two answers. There are two roads. There are two destinations. And that is it. And you do not get a chance to change once you take your last breath. And only God knows when that is. That's why when someone says to me, Well, I'm going to wait until I'm a little older and there's less to do, and then I'll give my life to Christ. I'm going to wait until things slow down a bit, because, you know, right now I'm enjoying the life that I'm living. It is appointed unto man, by God is the inference, one time to die. And you don't get to choose when that is. It might be tonight for any or all of us. It might be tonight for one of our children. We don't know when it is. Only God knows when it is. But I can tell you this, I know exactly what happens the moment you're done breathing on this earth you are going to stand before the judge of heaven. And if you happen to have the wrong answer, I believe in the name of the Lord Jesus. Good to see you, Jeff. But if you don't have that in operation for you, 
If his all-sufficient sacrifice has not covered your sin, if your name is not written in the Lamb's book of life, then you are going to be spending the next however long waiting final judgment in a place called Sheol, the abode of the dead, to face the great white throne judgment of God wherein death and Hades will be wrapped up and cast into hell. That's the options. There's no C. There's no do-overs. There's no, well, I didn't quite get it. There's exactly once. So Jesus' ministry was final and it was complete. There's nothing else that has to happen. There's no new revelation that has to be spilled. There isn't another way. That's why he himself said, I am the way and the truth and the life. And nobody gets to heaven but through me. You can't get there. All roads do not lead to heaven. As narrow as that is, and as people often retort to very violently, do you mean to tell me that all Hindus who don't believe in Jesus Christ are going to perish? I say to them, unfortunately, yes. So the first time you meet a Hindu, you might want to share Jesus with them. You mean every Muslim? Yes. Because without his perfect sacrifice, nobody gets into heaven. It was permanent. It was final. It was complete. So Christ was offered, notice this, once to bear the sins of many. Notice it doesn't say all. Do you know why it says many? Because not all will receive him. It says many. To as many as receive him, to them he gave the power to become the sons of God. To all who call upon the name of the Lord, they shall be saved. You see, there's many and there's all. And in Scripture, he's died for all, but not all will receive his sacrifice. He's done it for all. He wants all. For he desires all men to come to the knowledge of repentance and to be saved. But not all will come. So it says, his sacrifice is sufficient for all, but it will only be received by many. To those who eagerly wait for him, he will appear a second time apart from sin for salvation. Isn't that awesome? As you believe on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, you're waiting for him to, to come. Whether here to this earth or you to go there to be with him, but you're waiting for him a second time. You see, there is no second death for those who have been born again. There's only a second death for those who have not been born again. Because to die on this earth is to receive eternal life if you're a believer. To die on this earth as an unbeliever is to await a second death. That's what Scripture plainly declares in the book of Revelation. So he says to those who eagerly wait for him. Notice it doesn't say eagerly wait to get it right in purgatory. Uh, eagerly wait for people to pray them out of hell. Uh, eagerly wait for some other revelation that they didn't quite get because they were very confused while they were on this earth. 
and I don't mean to be trite here, but I'm saying what, why, what lays in the balance of you understanding the gospel is eternal salvation. And there is no other name under heaven whereby men may be saved. It can't happen any other way. And so that earthly sanctuary that awaits us is a permanent home for those of us who love the Lord. I would remind you that as you look at, there's three times that you see the word appeared or appearing uh, or, or appear itself here in these last few verses. And if you notice in verse 26, it's in the past tense. He has appeared to put away sin by dying on the cross. If you notice in verse 24, he is appearing now. In other words, it's in the present tense. Christ is appearing right now. He appears through you guys. When you tell people about Jesus, he's appearing to them. And he also appears here in verse 28 uh, in a very different sense because it is the future tense. Notice it says he shall appear to take us home, to greet us when we get there. And so he has appeared in the past, he is appearing now, and he will appear in the future. The question is, is will you be excited to see him? Or will you be shaking in your boots? Will you be looking forward to that glorious, eternal life and the glories of heaven? Or will you be absolutely in despair as he says, depart, for I have never known you? He's appeared. He is appearing. And he will appear again. Our heavenly hope is in heaven. It's not on this earth. Jesus came to this earth so that we could leave. Amen? Not stay here so we could go. He came so we could go. And I pray there's nobody in here tonight that hasn't received that free gift. Because it's a free gift. None, no, nobody you know needs to fret about where they're going to spend eternity. Because the answer to it is Jesus, the real sanctuary of God. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we thank you again uh, for the beauty of your word, Lord, for the understanding that you give us. And Lord, we don't want to ever get so attached to the things of this earth that, that Lord, we don't want to leave. Lord, our home is not here. Uh, We're citizens of this earth while we're here, but we're citizens eternally of heaven. And we pray that you'd help us to long for it. I pray for those tonight that maybe are struggling uh, with who they are in you. God, would you just convince and convict them of the truths of, of these words, Lord, not from me, from you. And I pray that if there happens to be just even one person in this room tonight that does not know you, that tonight would be the day of that choice to receive that offering, Jesus, that you made for each of us, your life for ours, your blood shed for the remission of sin, for the forgiveness and the justification that comes through it. We pray that you just speak these truths into each of our lives. Help us to remember them, Lord, to share your love with the world around us, Lord, as we bump into the people that we'll meet the remainder of this week, Lord, we pray. Uh, that our lives would shine as your light for you.
for your kingdom purposes, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Go look forward to that heavenly sanctuary. Amen.